0: Here on our little wireless program, we uh, love nothing more than a returning guest, especially when the guest has branched out in a new and unexpected direction. We recently dug out from our archives uh, an interview with Cassia St. Clair uh, and played it as a part of our Histories of Everything podcast. Now, in that interview, Cassia and I chatted about the ways fabric had been woven through human history, and she also wrote a best-selling book called The Secret Lives of Colour, and she's now turned her historian's gaze from colour wheels to steering wheels. In her new book, The Race to the Future, she tells the tale of an epic automobile race from Peking to Paris in 1907. Now, this was a race that not only tested human endurance, but also the capability of the recently invented motor car. And I'm delighted, Cassia's on the blower now from London, to tell us all, welcome back, Cassia. Was there a eureka moment? I'm intrigued at how you went from writing about colour and textiles to researching the history of the car.
1: Well, it, it is a bit of a, a surprising leap on one level. You know, colour and, and fabric um, are sort of quite kind of happy bedfellows, and then the car comes along, and you're thinking, okay, what's this? But for me, there there is a link all three things are um, everyday, ordinary um, uh, things, you know, colour we think about, you know, it's it's there with us when we wake up and and, and when we go to bed and and all the moments in between, particularly now that we've got social media. The same with fabric and of course the same with the car. All three are things that are ordinary and everyday and yet re-examining them and looking at their history can make us see the world in a different way. Having said that, my publishers were rather surprised that, having done books on colour and textiles, that I was absolutely adamant that my next book should be about the car and more specifically about this particular race in 1907, which I felt had the most incredible story to tell about the very dawn of the automotive era.
0: Now, we're going to be talking a lot about uh, a Prince Borghese, and of course, the Borghese gave us at least one Pope and those splendid gardens in Rome. He's a central character here, and that involves the, a certain colour.
1: Yes, so I think maybe if I'd been a little bit more sensible, I probably wouldn't have told this story or written this book at all because it first came to my attention really through a mistake. I was researching um, the book about colours and I was looking into the origins of Italy's racing red and during my investigation I uh, found this sort of story about Prince Borghese, who had raced from Peking to Paris and had this had really sort of caught the um, imaginations of the Italian public at the time. His exploits were widely reported when he arrived back in Italy. He was greeted by huge crowds. And it was said that because his car was bright red, this was adopted by Italy as their racing colour. And I just thought this was the most fantastic story. I wrote it up and I, I did email the museum where the car was, was housed, that um, is is housed today, to, to, to check. And they emailed me back, um, sadly, just after the book had gone to print, to tell me that they had tested <laughs> the paint all the way down to the metal, and there was not a single scrap of red. It was sort of shades of grey all the way down, uh, which was very disappointing and, and pretty embarrassing. That's not that's not what you want as a historian. And and like I said, maybe I should have just been sensible and, and kept quiet about it, and and it wouldn't have mattered. But by by that time. I had just fallen completely in, in love with the story, and and also wanted to wanted to correct the mistake, and and had discovered that I wasn't the only one who'd been taken in by tall tales about this this journey in 1907. Um, it it really caught the public imagination, you know, all across the world, and as a result, there'd been a lot of mythologizing about it, and legends and stories had grown up.
0: Okay, before we uh, fire the starting pistol on the race, how established was the car back in, well, in Europe, back in 1907?
1: So it was right on the cusp of being um, widely accepted. And and that's one of the reasons why I chose this race and 1907 to, to focus on, because, you know, at the time, the car was still very much seen as a novelty. You know, it had been invented, you know, a couple of decades before but was seen as very unreliable. Even real motoring enthusiasts, when they published guides to motoring, they would stress how important it was to take a great number of spares. They didn't expect it to be a reliable, practical form of transport, really from, from, from A to Z. Um, the same year when the race took place, the economist basically looked, to, looked at the motoring industry and said, you know, I don't think that the horse industry have anything to be worried about. Um, because horses are going to be here to stay while motoring is is just a fad. So, you know, at this time, it really felt as if the car was going to have limited value and was not going to be widely adopted as a mass form of transport.
0: I can't help uh, putting in parenthesis the interesting fact that these days, Ferrari, with its famous red, has a prancing horse as its symbol.
1: Absolutely. And, and actually, there's a lot of um, common language between the two, because a lot of the people who were really interested in horses and had the money to keep racehorses were exactly the same people, the elites, who were really interested in cars and in car racing. And so um, you know, at the beginning, when in very early car races around 1907, often owners would employ drivers to race their cars and would dress them (laughs) in silks exactly the same way that, you know, you have a a jockey wearing silks. Isn't
0: that funny? Cassia, who came up with the idea of uh, organising a race from uh, Peking to Paris or from Paris to Peking?
1: So, um, a French newspaper called Le Matin that's based in in Paris came up with the idea essentially as a brilliant publicity stunt. Similar things had been done before with with bike races and even with with some earlier um, car races um, between cities in Western Europe. Um, And they realised that what was so fantastic about doing such a long journey was that, it, particularly if you embedded journalists with the races, that they could submit daily or, you know, maybe even twice or, or three times daily, depending on where the Telegraph offices were, they could submit reports and this would be really exciting for newspaper readers. Essentially, it was a brilliant way of marketing newspapers as well as promoting the automobile because people would be hooked on the story and would want to buy the copy day after day.
0: And of course the uh, the, te- the aforementioned Telegraph was critical, was essential to this and so I understand the plan was originally to follow the te- telegraph lines
1: it was so if you look at the route that they uh, that, you know they decided upon in 1907 it isn't really the most direct route and it isn't perhaps the most historically interesting route it actually goes almost sort of you know due north from from what is now beijing up through mongolia to ulanbator um, over the border to, to Lake Baikal in, in Russia, and then kind of hangs a left and carries all the way on through Russia um, before popping out um, of the <laughs> Russian Empire, as it was in those days, in Germany.
0: Yeah. Now, as you write, the uh, the race elevated the newspaper and journalists as surely as it did the automobile.
1: Absolutely. So, the Le Matin had um, a, a journalist with the embedded with one of the cars. There was also a very prominent Italian journalist called Luigi Barzini, who wrote both for the Corriella della Sera, um, an Italian newspaper, and also the Daily Telegraph. And through their, you know, daily reports, um, this story was really widely circulated. It was picked up in in Hawaii in rural Ohio, in in Sydney, um, in in Melbourne, all over the world, you can find references to it. It really captured um, global imaginations.
0: Cassia, obviously there's a lovely alliteration in uh, Peking to Paris, but why were these two cities chosen as the (laughs) endpoints?
1: So Peking to Paris or Paris to Peking had become something of a kind of 19th century travel trope. A few other people um, had done this journey previously, either using the railway system or using a kind of combination of dog sled, horse carriage, you know, horse drawn carriages um, or carts. Or simply riding on horseback. So the idea of going from Peking to Paris wasn't new. It had also really kind of gained momentum. This journey, um, when they had built the, when they were building the railway that kind of linked these two continents. The other reason um, why Peking to Paris had such kind of um, attraction was that Paris was seen as the kind of spiritual and cultural um, centre of the West, while Peking was similarly seen as a a centre of the East. And so by journeying from Peking to Paris, you were going from the heart of, 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 of the East to the heart of the West.
0: LNL on RN, I'm talking to Cassius Sinclair about uh, her marvellous new book, The Race to the Future. How many cars showed up at the start?
1: So when they first put out the call, there was a great wave of interest. And, um, uh, you know, I think around two dozen people um, professed um, interest. However, the thought of shipping your car to China was very expensive. And then also there was a steep entry fee imposed on entrance. And so by the time the the day of the start of the race came, that was uh, June 10th, 1907, only five cars were at the start line.
0: Heavens above. Now, the uh, the Qing dynasty was on its way out, but still in power at the time of the race. And uh, did the Chinese government, what did it make of European motor cars rattling through the, uh, through the
1: forbidden city? So this was, uh, you know, part of what um china thought of then and, and still thinks of now as the century of humiliation you know it had been forced to open itself up really unwillingly to um western traders and 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 give over land to um to to foreign countries you know these were called concessions and there was always this threat of um, military invasion or or, or, um, you know there was, there was a constant air of threat and so they really felt very powerless to be able to, to do anything and they were also very suspicious of the, the kind of military might of the West now naturally when they heard that um, you know a group of automobiles were, were going to be coming to Beijing and going to be sort of scouting up a route um, north through Mongolia to Russia they were really suspicious they believed and I think they were probably um, well within their their rights to believe uh, that this was possibly a a sort of scouting mission for a military invasion.
0: It has to be said however the car wasn't entirely unknown because uh, the Dowager Empress owned an early American example.
1: Absolutely. I think what's really funny about um, or one thing that's really funny about um, uh, this race, looking back on it now, is they really presented themselves as bringing technology and, you know, in the form of the automobile to China and sort of, you know, gifting it on the benighted local um, populace. But that wasn't true at all. In fact, you know, there had been cars in, in China before the Peking to Paris race. And one of the earliest was owned uh, by the Empress Dowager been given to her by a sort of a courtier and it had been sort of specially designed for her. Not only was it painted with imperial um, yellow lacquer, but because there was kind of court protocol that no one could sit higher than the empress, the, the sort of relative heights of the seats of the chauffeur and the passenger had been altered to kind of accommodate court protocol.
0: Are you right? And I quote... What made the Peking to Paris so compelling was that the motor car was only half the challenge. Even the most bullish enthusiasts were intimidated by the route. Did they actually drive the whole way or was there some, so we say, shonky behaviour?
1: they didn't drive the whole way and in fact it would have been almost impossible for them to because you know particularly in the early part of the race going um, through um, through china there were sort of successions of very narrow um, mountainous passes which weren't even wide enough to accommodate the car at all and so in order um, even if the car had been strong enough to get up very steep hills which at that time you know it, it simply it simply wasn't you know steep hills and very tough terrain were more than the car of that time could handle and so they had to employ sort of teams of, of, um, of men um, over the first uh, couple of weeks to help them get through um, this landscape and thereafter you know they encountered many times um, land that simply wouldn't allow them to drive you know whether it was too muddy um, or too too rough um, they quite often had to seek the, the help of, of animals to sort of drag them um, over over bits of, of land that the car couldn't cope with.
0: Or oh, and- in fact, float them across rivers,
1: or in fact, float them across rivers, and then, of course, you know, almost immediately, um, that the race begins. The competitors break up. There had been sort of talk beforehand that they would all stay together, but, it, but in actual fact, they all kind of end up slightly going their own way, and so you know, thereafter, because they're left on their own and to their own devices, you get, you know, doubts about whether actually all the competitors were really driving at all.
0: Now, fuel and oil, of course, needed to be sent out in advance and I guess also food supplies. How was all that the logistics handled?
1: It was an incredibly... Intimidating logistical challenge. When they reached um, Beijing, They organized vast amounts of supplies that would get them to um, Ulaanbaatar, which was really the next big town, um, which was, you know, an intimidating distance away. But also um, quite a barren landscape with with relatively few um, towns where they could refuel, um, particularly going through uh, the Gobi Desert and, and through parts of Mongolia.
0: So so, so these magnificent men in their driving machines had to drive 8,000 miles, or what's that, about 15,000 k's, across the mountains, desert, flooded rivers. Did any of them actually make it to the finishing line?
1: Actually, a surprising number did. You know, as I said, they, did they all drive to the finishing line? No. But of the five cars that set out from Beijing, four of them would end up in Paris.
0: Now, we've talked a bit about the prince and he was clearly a a fine fellow and I like the fact that he was so confident about his chance of winning that he took a huge detour while travelling through Russia to attend a dinner (laughs) held in his honour in St Petersburg but enter the frankly villainous Charles Goddard.
1: Yeah, he's a really interesting character. A lot of the... um, you know, a lot of the accounts that have been written since the race, there was sort of a, a little um, revival of interest in it in the nineteen late nineteen fifties and early nineteen sixties. They sought to um, paint Goddard sort of as the as the unsung hero of the Peking to paris in a way having the principal gazy as the as the winner feels a little bit unsatisfying he was the most wealthy um, he was you know the best regarded and his car was the most powerful and so to contemporise, it sort of seems that he had a really unfair advantage not least because he had his chauffeur with him as a passenger who was also able to to take over part of the driving. So it seems like he had this massive advantage, and his win was a foregone conclusion. And so, because of that, people were casting around for um, another hero. And Goddard um, presented himself. He was, you know, relatively unknown. Um, he died fairly well. He, he died in in, in 1919, um, fairly soon after the race. And so, you know, he hadn't left much of a, a mark. And so, people really sort of clung to him as the person who perhaps should have been more celebrated. Not least because he did some really impressive um, driving and, and 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 did show himself on occasion to be very brave.
0: Well, you make the point that he'd probably never driven a car before.
1: As far as we know, you know, there's, there's no particular evidence for him having driven a car before. There isn't much evidence about his life before or after. There were sort of claims, I like like I said, in the 1960s, that he'd been part of like a, a daring motorcycle troop and had sort of performed a, a wall of death stunt. Um, but actually, this was some time before walls of, <laughs> walls of death stunts had been invented. Um, so I don't quite know where this comes from. And, and sadly, um, we you know, the journalists who who wrote these books in the 1960s are no longer with us, and so I can't, you know, go back and and ask them if they had access to sources that I simply couldn't find, which may, of course, be the case. But I I saw no evidence for that at all. And all the evidence that I did see, and I did uncover some some new information, pointed in a very different direction.
0: But nonetheless, Goddard's uh, unscrupulous tricks uh, gained him a badly needed advance in the... uh, From the back of the field
1: absolutely so he he actually suffered from um some some very bad luck quite early on a kind of vital part of um his car the you know part of the ignition um was faulty or developed a fault on the route it gave up and he couldn't move an inch further without it and it was also not the kind of thing that you really would have taken a spare of um but also you know to compound the problem he had taken he had been given or had sort of procured a whole lot of spares But he'd sold them all in France simply in order to afford. Um, The passage for himself and the car to China in the first place. So he was really travelling with no safety net at all. Not only did he not have the money um, to replace things if if they broke, but he'd also sold all his spare parts. But yes, so early on in the race, he grinds to a to a (laughs) stop and can't go any further.
0: And yet, at one stage, it looked like he uh, he might win. But when he arrives at the French border, he's arrested for scams? Yes.
1: Yeah, so, you know, unfortunately, you know, the, the the race organisers were quite buttoned up. They were very proper and they wanted to, um, you know, make sure that this uh, race sort of painted the car in a good light. And the exploits of Goddard, you know, sort of lying um, to the manufacturers of, of the car um, in order to get uh, a vehicle at all. It wasn't his own. He, he'd sort of borrowed it from the manufacturer and he told them there was a huge prize um, for the winner, which wasn't true. He'd then, you know, sort of slightly scammed his way in order to get a whole load of spare parts, which he'd then sold. <laughs> and, and he then also slightly scammed the dutch consul in peking um to give him even more money so all these stories oh, I, I love of this book I
0: think he sounds terrific
1: and, uh, <laughs> it's very it's, it's really funny um and and really sort of scandalous and this sort of these sort of seeping um stories of scandal at the time were really upsetting to the organizers and and they just wanted to get rid of him to stop embarrassing them <laughs> and to stop embarrassing the car.
0: cassia he claimed to the car manufacturer that uh, there was a huge prize, but the prize itself was really quite modest. It was only symbolic, wasn't it?
1: It, it was. I mean, actually, they, they were given quite generous gifts as they passed through various countries. Um, I, You know, various medals were struck and sculptures were made for them. Um, but in terms of a sort of a big cash prize, there, there wasn't one, which is what he had claimed. But I was fortunate enough to um meet various members of Borghese's family who still had some of the beautiful medals that had been struck for him in in St Petersburg and Moscow and given to him and they really were you know beautifully made works of art um, so they they did get um beautiful things um but in terms of of uh, a big cash prize, sadly there was none.
0: Now, a year after the Paris to Peking, Henry Ford uh, reveals the Model T and that, of course, famously put the world on wheels. You uh, remind us in your book that electric cars are not new inventions. They also date back to around uh, 1890. Tell me it wasn't an antecedent of Elon Musk. (laughs)
1: <laughs> so there was a lot of interest um in the very early days of the automobile in in different sources of fuel and the sort of the kind of eventual emergence of you know petrol powered cars um wasn't a foregone conclusion a lot of people um felt that actually electricity was was far better in many ways it was cleaner um, it was more reliable then as now most journeys are are, are done are, are very short and so actually an electric car um is, is perfect for a very short um journey um, and, and and so um, you know, electric cars were sort of seen as really a, a, a viable option. However, the technology, you know, wasn't really as good as it, it could have been, and was it was slightly disappointing to people. And the other problem was that electric cars at this time became really associated with women, in part because. You know they were refuelled at home and could only go a certain distance from home, and so this made them seem less uh, less adventurous, and more feminine. And so this kind of connection between the electric car and women really kind of hampered the development of the electric car.
0: We've had the pleasure of talking to Cassia Sinclair about her book, *The Race to the Future*, the adventure that accelerated the 20th century. Thanks very much, uh, Cassia. Talk to you again sometime.
1: Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.